0: If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, Just Not Sports. Today's show jam-packed. We've got a pair of interviews with star athletes who are using their passion for business to inspire others. We'll start by talking to U.S. soccer star Megan Rapino, one of my all-time favorite athletes, about her new clothing line, which has an awesome message of empowerment you'll want to hear about. We are also going to chat with Denver Broncos offensive lineman Russell Okun about his interest in technology and investing and his movement to teach coding to underserved communities. Very cool stuff. And look... It's just not sports, guys. We've got one more week of Shaq stuff in us. So we track down author and cultural critic Nathan Rabin to break down the big Razzie's acting style. And, you know, maybe weave in the natural conversation topics of Donald Trump and the gathering of the Juggaloos. We will also slam some hammers, give you some distractions and so much more. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. No Adam this week. No Joe this week. It's just me and our Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, are you surviving the start of the NFL season?
1: Oh, yeah. Football is back. Brad still cannot pronounce the word juggalo, and (laughs) fall is here, baby. Let's go.
0: I really can't pronounce the word juggalo. What do I say? Juggaloo?
1: You say Juggaloo every time. You will say it every time through the Nathan Rabin interview. And I hope our guests en- or I hope our listeners enjoy it.
0: Yeah, that's me. I, I, I have- hope
1: you get I hope you get trolled by a million Juggaloos.
0: <laughs> I have uh, I've written about the Juggaloos in the past and uh, have already gotten trolled by them uh, in the earlier days of the Internet and in my reporting days. Uh, but, yeah, I'm sure this time around it'll be a lot worse. So, oh, well. And uh, Garrett, did you awesome. did you watch any football this weekend or no? Do you have any hot takes? I you did watch.
1: To- fo- I was actually I was actually at the uh, Browns Eagles game for a shoot, and then I was uh, I watched most of the Giants Cowboys game. And I am a Patriot fan, and I went to bed in the first quarter of that game. I will admit to that. I was tired, um, but that was a hell of a story and fascinating to watch.
0: Oh, you mean the start of the RG three era?
1: Uh, I meant the start of the Jimmy Garoppolo era, but I believe we're veering dangerously into sports talk
0: here, so. (laughs) No sports talk, no RG3 talk is in my bones, trust me. So, on this show, we do talk to a lot of people in the sports world about stuff that has nothing to do with sports, and to bring these people onto the show, we don't just send them invites behind the scene, we do you the favor of slamming the hammer on them publicly and making the invites known it's just you and me today, Gareth. So, pressure's on. Who do you want to slam the hammer to?
1: Uh, my hammer this week is one of the people that makes covering the NFL fun. And we thought he wasn't going to be around this year. Uh, Steve Smith Sr. Back for one more year of football. Uh, frankly, one of the most interesting and my, one of my favorite people in the NFL. Just a lot of personality outspoken about his role as a parent and a father Steve Smith is one of my favorite people in the NFL and he's unhatable at this point so but you know I get to play host too this time Brad who's your hammer this week
0: my hammer I'm taking it to the world of baseball Gareth Keith Law like it you know Keith Law ESPN analyst stat guru prospect guru
1: yeah, I barely like baseball at this point, especially outside the months of September and October. And I love Keith Law's Twitter feed.
0: Keith Law is like the professional vigilante of of the sports Twitter verse. Like he just will like sh- sh- fire shots at anyone out there talking about stuff that does not link up with his worldview. And I find him ever more fascinating for it. kudos to mm-hmm. kudos to Keith. I love it. All right. But did you know he's also full of other hot takes, Gareth, about board games? Keith Law, Ooh. Keith Law, no joke, reviews board games for Paste Magazine every month. Legit reviews.
1: Wow. like, Are we talking like new era board games like Settlers of Catan and things like that? Or like this isn't like Monopoly. I don't think they need a new review
0: of Monopoly, <laughs> right? Yeah. Correct. He's not dusting off the sorry from his grandparents basement and being like, hey, kid, Scrabble, reconsidered. (laughs) Yes, it's it's a totally I just I love reconsidered. Look, he does all the new games, the games I've never heard of, but he takes it very seriously and he's very good. So listen to some of these reviews. So here's one about this game called Flea Market. A very silly game, light on strategy, although not quite devoid of it, and in our experience, best enjoyed by the maximum five players with plenty of adult beverages around. Yeah, Hmm. that sums it up, man. And he goes on, he's got like long columns. Here's one about Camel Up. (laughs) Camel Up sounds like one of those adult beverages that you'd have around, but I digress. Absolutely. Camel Up provides good, clean betting fun for the whole family as players place short and long-term bets on the outcome of the world's slowest camel race. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that is awesome. And look, we've got kids. Like My kid, my daughter is three. Your uh, your oldest is a little bit older. So you're going to phase into that um, board game universe a little earlier than I will.
1: Yeah, we start, we started Sorry this summer. That was our first foray.
0: Oh, so when you said, sorry, reconsidered, you had plenty of hashtag hot takes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Screw the blue pieces. Uh, No, Keith, come on, talk to us about board games. I may or may not have already reached out to ESPN about this. (laughs) I'm awaiting to hear (laughs) back. Pretty soon I'm going rogue around the ESPN PR team and just hitting them up direct on Twitter or maybe the paste forums. So that's it. If you got someone you want us to talk to. Email us just not at gmail.com. Tweet us at just not sports or hell slam the hammer on them. Just go to them direct and just be like, go on just not sports and talk about this. Actually, you know what? We should tell our listeners to do that all the time.
1: Amen to that. Yeah. We need you to be the voice of just not sports and lobby for us.
0: Yeah. And go to Adam's Twitter and tell him not to blow us off for work functions anymore.
1: Amen to that.
0: <laughs> All right. Right now, we're going to take a quick break. We've got a really, really packed show with a lot of really interesting voices. So Megan Rapino, U.S. soccer star, professional women's soccer star, making a ton of news recently for advocacy of social issues and equal rights. We love talking to her about her clothing line because it infuses a lot of those same ideas um, right into everything from the mantra of the organization down to the apparel that they design and sell. She's the creative director of that business, so it's it's kind of a unique perspective from an athlete who's very involved and is very business savvy. And then business savvy is the only way to describe Russell Okung, who's been with the Seattle Seahawks for several years. Now he's with the Denver Broncos. Such a passion for the tech world, for investing. He's an angel investor. He's been involved in startups. And he talks a lot about his work to get underserved communities involved in tech and coding, which we love. And then one of our all-time favorite writers, Nathan Rabin, talking about Shaq's acting career. And then we go, I would say, Gareth, a little off, <laughs> off course and get into his <laughs> new book about, okay, wait, wait. T- the lose
1: juggalos man juggalo (laughs) that was not even it rhymes with bro
0: bro (laughs) that was not even me messing around um I was literally guessing and guessing wrong uh but Nathan's a great guy great writer one of our favorites written some really fascinating books and he's got a new one out so we talk a little bit about that too we'll be right back after this Let me start with this. You know, I've worked with a lot of athletes who, you know, are part of causes or foundations. I've worked with a lot of athletes who have apparel lines. I've worked with a lot of athletes who run camps and clinics. The, the thing I like about Rapino SC so much is how it sort of blends a lot of elements um, like that together and, and defies an easy categorization. Um, can you kind of describe for our listeners what what is the, f- the sort of overall mission Of the organization, and and how would you best describe it?
2: That's a a good question. Um, I think our mission statement says a lot of it. We want to want to facilitate um, an environment, a way of life, um, kind of just a a general sort of outlook on of maximizing you as a person and celebrating whoever that is, that you are, and, and kind of, I guess, encouraging people to find whatever it is within mm-hmm. themselves. Um, and we think that there's something special and unique and badass in everyone. Um, and, mm-hmm. and specifically with our clinics, um, generally, we have had some co-ed clinics, um, like when we go home to Reading, um, they're generally co-ed, but we work um, pretty much primarily with with young girls in our clinics. And, and our message to them is whatever you want to be. They're not elite soccer clinics, so we're not getting the best of the best. We're getting whoever, getting kids that play soccer all the time, kids that just love us and just want to come to the clinics, so they put some shoes on. So we, we kind of want to express to them that whatever it is you want to be, whether that's a doctor, a soccer player, um, a mom, a veterinarian, then you can do that and just kind of empower them in a way. And I think what we do, which is pretty... I think, amazing as a staff is we have a pretty diverse staff. Both my sister and I um, are gay. We have other um, gay coaches, but we also have straight coaches, and we have men that work in our staff, and we have women, and we have college coaches, and we have professional athletes, and uh, we kind of have a mixed bag of of staff that we all, of course, come to do the clinics and, um, you know, are there for a specific purpose that we can kind of reach a greater... Uh, a greater message within all of that. And then our clothing line, I think, um, you know, fashion is something that Rachel and I always have been interested in, very interested in. It's a way for us to kind of express who we are. It's not about, um, you know, trying to look cool or trying to, you know, wear what's the best. It's about feeling good. And what you're wearing obviously is human beings for the most part, we have to wear clothes and, and clothes are a way that we can kind of help express ourselves. So it's kind of a fun creative outlet for us. But really what we're trying to do is just get people to realize that you're badass the way you are and, and we want to celebrate that.
0: Yeah. I mean it's it's an awesome cause. The fashion line is great. I want to talk to you a little bit more about the process that goes into that. The thing that's, that just leaps out when you see it, you know, be your best you. Like what a rallying cry. What a great rallying cry. It's all over the clothes you guys are creating. It's all over the materials and, and stuff that we see for the organization. Where did you, when did you land on that? And wh- you know, I, I'm sure at the moment that you did, you kind of knew you had something special that was going to be this like really strong mantra for, for you guys. But, but what was the inspiration for that specific phrase?
2: It came came across kind of over time and sort of um, pretty organically. I think the relationship that Rachel and I have always had is is one of competition, but only to make each other better. It's never been we've never had, and our parents have never kind of instilled in us or said to us about being the best. Period. That didn't. That wasn't a conversation. It was just about, you know, doing what you can. And I have found that within Rachel and I's relationship, that's kind of how we operated, even as kids, Um, even before we knew what sibling rivalry really was. It was kind of just we just wanted to kind of compete and do the best that we could. And then I feel like that's something that I've really held on to in my career. Like, I'm never going to be anyone else. I'm never going to be able to do what... Alex does or what Tobin does and on the flip side they're, they're never going to be able to do what I do so and I think Rachel's kind of experienced that too just in her life of trying to you know figure out kind of post-college what she wanted to do and you know what is everybody else doing in this and it's it's not about that it's just about doing what you can it sounds really simple and we we kind of we don't want to be cliche. I think that the, too often the, the the sports and just generally, I think things could be cliche and that's really boring. But we really do believe that. Like you don't have to be you don't have to be the best. There's no there's no such thing as the best. I mean, even in all the awards, the MVPs and everything, there's best by a certain metric. But really, everyone is just playing to the best of their ability. So that's kind of how that came. And we want to tell that to kids because I think, especially in youth sports right now there's just such an emphasis on on winning and being the best and do this training so your kid will be the best at this or do this and then you'll get to college and then you'll be the best and then you can get to the national team. It's just like this crazy, crazy thing where really 1% of the kids are going to go to college and then 1% of them are going to go on a play pro. So what about the rest? The, the, the experience, I think, for a lot of youth sports um, participants is is being ruined by this idea of winning and being the best, and you kind of miss all of the magic in between. But it kind of came a little bit organically, just of how we view life um, and and kind of our upbringing together, and it just kind of stuck. Just kind of worked, and it's kind of something that resonated with us both, and something that is very versatile. I think it, it was. It's not really a a sports thing, it's not really a life thing. It's just kind of, you know, something that's that's pretty interchangeable with all of the different facets that we want to go into with our with our business.
0: What you know, you mentioned your sister, uh, you know, she kind of runs the day to operations. You are the creative director. What is your working dynamic like? Um, and how do you how would you best describe the ways you guys sort of interact as the as the head and the face of of Rapino S C
2: Um It's kind of funny. I feel like, you know, in terms of the the operations of the business, you know, she's very much the boss and she's day to day and she's sort of, you know, boots on the ground. But I feel like in in another sense, being kind of the face of it, you know, I need to continue to do that and be an ambassador for the brand. So it's kind of, we sort of have these kind of I don't know, double CEO things. Like, there's no way I could do any of this without her. And there's no way she could do any of this without me. So, you know, she, right now, of course, because just the demand of soccer and, and having to travel all the time, I can't really, you know, be present enough. And, and to be honest, at this point, I don't really want to do that. And so she's kind of, you know, CEO in that sense of a business way. And then my role as creative director. Um, is something that we kind of decided. And, and really, I'm more interested in that part of it anyways mm-hmm. than she is. And she is is happy to kind of let me have that kind of creative direction. And, you know, we both work with the desi- designers, and we're both very involved in, in all aspects, especially when we're, we're putting clothing or hats or whatever, or apparel out. But it's kind of my role to really drive that and to kind of be – I guess the the fashion eye of the team.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, you're, I know you're coming off a very high profile injury. I've read some comments from you where you said during your time away, as you were rehabbing, you dove, you got to dive into the company a little bit uh, and explore your role as creative director. What is it? What is your day to day in terms of, um, where do you, where do you most influence, um, what you guys are doing and what's your creative process? What's your, like, what, what's the way you like to work when you're creating?
2: um i feel like I'm, I'm really observant um just even in my my own fashion i like to i look at um you know fashion blogs or look at instagram or just look at what other people are wearing and kind of grab tid, tidbits from from wherever i can really i've always been really interested in fashion and how how i can express myself through fashion so i think if I, you know my role is kind of you know, we sort of have our set line, but within that, we're kind of we we want to keep expanding, and we want to you know twice, three times a year, be able to kind of put new stuff out or new styles. So it's kind of my job to drive that and and think of you know new styles that we want, or um, it's kind of a different direction that we want to go, or the types of you know pieces that we want to put out. Right now, we just have t-shirts and sweatshirts and um, hats, but hopefully, we can kind of start expanding. So I think it's my job to kind of drive drive the what's next and we kind of get that rolling and then we both sort of get into the process when when it gets down to business time.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, the the clothes are great. They've got a very sort of clean minimalist look and I mean that as a positive. I I always hate mm-hmm. trying to trying to categorize things because it might be completely away from your intent, so I apologize if you're like, "Yeah, that's not <laughs> no, what I'm no, going no. for."
2: That's, that's very much it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um is that is that what you would describe as like the permanent look you want for the brand or is that like where you are now and you you could imagine taking drastic departures with future designs?
2: Um no, on the whole I don't think that will take drastic. I think we'll have um you know some kind of pieces, maybe sort of season pieces that will be a little bit different or something that will um you know, kind of deviate from um, maybe it's involving prints or some kind of floral print or something like that. But I think you did nail it. We we do want a very simple, um, clean, kind of modern aesthetic to our gear, something that you can wear to the gym if you want, something that you can throw on with jeans under a jean jacket, and that would be totally fine as well. So I think especially kind of for our signature line, Be Your Best Use stuff, um, the Rapino Club line, like that will all... I think be sort of a staple within our collection, and then we'll have um, different pieces throughout the seasons that we'll kind of take more
0: risks on. Quick question will Will hats ever be cool with bent brims again? Because that's the way I grew up with them, and now I feel like I can never wear a hat because I'm instantly I look like I'm a hundred <laughs> years old because I'm wearing it against the style.
2: Uh, well, I think five panels kind of offer a good
0: mix um
2: <laughs> if it was up to me and my style uh and i think you know the rates may feel the same we would probably have more five panel hats than we do snapbacks but obviously snapbacks are just incredibly popular
3: yeah. right now
2: but i think a five panel offers a nice um you know kind of alternative it's more of a fitted hat um kind of more like yeah an old school kind of baseball hat or like a sort of college-y looking hat um but I like those too. I think that those definitely—they're kind of making a little bit of a comeback. I feel like the, the sort of like just sort of canvasy hat with a with a, a bent rim is coming back.
0: Yeah, I mean.
2: I hope. I yeah. hope. I'm, I'm a little bit over the snapbacks, but.
0: I keep waiting for. <laughs> yeah, I, as someone who kind of came of age in, um, you know, in the late '90s, I kind of keep waiting for my styles to like cycle back, and we're like like seven years away from like my closet looking like it's retro cool again, but you know, we'll we'll get there eventually.
2: <laughs> Hold um, out hope.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, look, you you mentioned like. You know, sort of your personal style. It's very vulnerable to be creative publicly, um, to create designs and have to put them out for mass appeal. How do you balance Mm -hmm. the 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 styles that you feel most, you know, the most personal passion for versus the trends that you think may, you know, people might wear? Or do you ever worry that, hey, I really love this, but, you know, I don't want to put it out there because, you know, I don't want to get rejected or 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 whatnot?
2: Mm-hmm. It is a balance. Um, I have definitely found that what I thought would sell the best doesn't necessarily, and um, sometimes I'm, you know, I'm surprised by what people are into. Um, but I think it's a balance. I think I do want to. I don't just want to put out whatever is popular. Um, right. I, I think Rachel and I both feel like yes, we want to um, sort of curate for for people. We want obviously we want people to buy it, but we also want it to to be sort of palatable for a lot of different people, but we also want to put our spin on it, um, our colors, our sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, creative direction with it. So it is a balance. I, I understand that not everybody likes what I like, and I don't like what everybody else likes. So it's, its and that's okay. And I don't need to create a line that's just exactly for me. Um, but it's been interesting. It's been, i you know, maybe arrogantly i thought like just the stuff that i would love everyone would love but i've also realized that i think i like the stuff that's a little bit more subtle i think it's still a little um not embarrassing but you know i'm conscious of not being like rapino 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 but some people want that and some people want big bright you know they're going to a cave and they want they want a big bright shirt that says rapino on it and i think you know while i wouldn't love to wear that, it's obviously because of my name, somebody else, maybe that's what they're looking for. Maybe instead of buying a jersey, what they're doing is buying right. one of our sweatshirts. So kind of a balance between pushing what we want, because um, I definitely want to do that. I think that we both have a, a pretty creative eye and a, and a pretty um, cool fashion sense, but kind of mixing it to make it good for everyone and not just what we want.
0: Well, you found the balance because the Mo Pino Mo Party shirt is one of my favorites.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a, that is uh, a good one. That is actually uh, someone uh, within our our company. I think originally it was going to be no, but then that just like I don't know the vibe of it just didn't really feel. But no yeah. sort of was like a negative vibe, and it just wasn't wasn't really what what we stand for anyway. So yeah, it kind of organically came about with the Mo and. That's a good
0: one. I do love that one. <laughs> when are you at your most creative? Um, I'm someone who, like, I, when I'm at a desk, I'm not. I'm not feeling. I get up, I walk the office. Uh, I will. Um, you know, I I have my best ideas in the shower, not to get graphic, but like when I'm doing something where mm. like my body's doing something and my mind can yeah. just not think. As an athlete, yeah. you're someone who probably has deep focus. Um, and and you train your mind and your body to be very in the moment. So what does that still apply for creativity? Did you find yourself at certain times finding more inspiration than others?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm an extremely visual person. So when I walk around the street, when I meet new people, when my teammates come into the locker room, like I, I can't help but But notice, especially when it comes to fashion, I notice what people are wearing, how they're wearing and and not just not just the article of clothing that they're wearing, but like, why? Why does that look so cool on them? What about their vibe is um, is kind of like portraying that. Um, So, yeah, I'm a very visual person, so I just I watch everything and, and I don't. Like some people are like, oh, this is like my style, and I don't want people to like snatch it. And I'm kind of like, no, well, it's really not. It's not like anything is one off. So I don't mind stealing other people's styles or getting what other people get. And I don't mind if they do that to me. I think it's it's how you rock it that makes it unique.
0: What are your ambitions? Where do you want to where do you want to take this?
2: Yeah, um, I think I think we don't even totally know that. We definitely want it to keep growing. We want it to move beyond. You know, the platform, I think right now it's it's a lot reliant on the clinics and we want to kind of move past that. We want to be something bigger. I don't know if that means, you know, seminars or us putting on a music festival or putting on a three, three tournament or something like that. We kind of want to take it past just the clinics and, and be able to reach to a much bigger audience and be able to reach not only to kids, but to people our age as well.
0: Yeah, well, we love it. We want to direct all of our listeners to to go check you out online, rapino.us. The, on Instagram, it's the Rapino brand. You are um, at MPino mm-hmm. on Twitter. So best of luck. Yep. Mo' Pino, Mo' Party. I'm all for it. Uh, you'll be seeing us wearing that uh, in future tapings. Oh, I love
2: it. Thanks for having me on.
0: I want to start with, um, I was on Twitter. I saw you tweeting about Kobe getting into the venture capital game. By the end of this call, you and me need to come up with an idea that would land some of that sweet Kobe Inc money, man.
3: Well, you know what? I'm already rolling. You're a little bit too late.
0: <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, now uh, tell me a little bit more about your interest in technology. You, I want to get into the foundation's work. Um, and I want to talk in depth about that, but tell me a little bit about where the the overall interest in in tech started.
3: Yeah, there's been a lately. There's been a shift. Um, there's been a shift in where athletes are definitely taking more notice and in being investors and being smart investors, uh, getting into technology. And I think the big reason behind that is just the barrier of entry is a lot lower, um, and then, and it's an industry that's just a, a lot more open uh, to people from different backgrounds uh, to being a part of. Um, so my interest kind of came from uh, a venture capitalist out in Seattle named Matt McElwain of Matrona Ventures. Really kind of took me under his wing, uh, really kind of gave him that exposure uh, as well as that accessibility into the tech space. You know, and I got involved with some angel investing, investing into some companies and just loved it. And I think that's why a lot of athletes also uh, are learning to love it, too. I mean, you look at it, you learn about product differentiation. Uh, um, um market, uh, market strategy, things like that. And it's just so intriguing and, and you can be a part of it, you know? And, uh, I think that's why most guys are getting into it.
0: Is there a, do you think, I mean, you mentioned the barrier coming down a little bit, but do you feel like, it's still an intimidating place for athletes or really any investor to get into. I mean, I, I, when I think, you know, tech Silicon Valley, I think, wow, there's so much I don't understand. Uh, What's the key to getting your feet wet and starting out on this road to getting more involved in this field?
3: I think a lot of people need to consider first before they invest in technology, that's a very high risk area, you know, but in most portfolios, most people do what, maybe five to 10, percent uh with really aggressive ventures you know so i think that's kind of your uh, most people's sweet spot if they want to kind of get involved and in my case i invest a lot in sports tech you know so things that i understand um i'm in companies or i got like dollars in companies uh where, that are really related to sports whether you're talking health wellness performance analytics uh quantified self things like that anything to make the sports experience better um, and it's something that I get immediately as I'm going to grow into uh, other sides of technology. But I think taking an incremental approach at first is, is really helpful.
0: Now, I saw you were at the NBPA Tech Summit. Um, how did that go? And what kinds of topics did you guys address um, as a group?
3: Well, you know, I, I really just know a lot of the guys, um, the, mm-hmm. the guys that are kind of running it over there. I didn't really get a chance to really uh, be a part of it much. They wanted to kind of keep it exclusive to the NBA players, but I spent a lot of time in the Valley, and uh, really it's just an introduction. I think uh, one thing that a lot of players have is capital. You you don't want to be dumb capital. You want to have a a very uh, smart approach as well as uh, a a value proposition towards companies that you want to get involved in. So kind of learning that and learning what your sweet sweet spot is, what uh, area of technology is most interesting to you, Um, it can help you be a better investor. And I think that's why um, they have things like NBA PA Summit um, and for guys to kind of learn and uh, get a really good introduction.
0: I mean, you talk about learning. That's the the foundation of Greater. Can you talk a little bit about the the mission of the organization and how you decided to start it?
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, Greater uh, Foundation is, uh, we pretty much leverage the platform of sport and technology uh, to bring uh, awareness, accessibility, uh, as well as exposure uh, into low-income areas, you know. So we're do- we're dealing with a lot of people from from diverse backgrounds, a lot of people who uh, haven't had that exposure piece of technology, but are purely consumers. You know. So we do some really interesting things. Um, one, we you know we 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 work with uh, uh, we have partner organizations where we're teaching uh, kids to code. Yeah, we we're teaching student athletes to code now, and we're kind of mobilizing them to get into communities as well too, um, and just. Um, um, be involved in what's going on um, I think w- one thing we've realized is that uh, we're really shifting into this if we're not we haven't already shifting into an innovation economy and mm-hmm. people people of color have to be a part of that so giving them that exposure as well as um, the tools to succeed and be in that area is the best thing you could possibly do I mean I mean look at the uh, there's such an, uh, an income divide and I think a big part of that is not having that accessibility. <laughs>
0: You know, I think that's such a good point about the shift in the economy and the rewards of entrepreneurship and innovation and the importance of getting involved in STEM fields at an early age. I mean, we, we know the, the, the stats about whether it's minorities or at, at-risk students, if they don't have exposure to that at an early age, it's such a harder skill to catch up on later. So how important do you feel it is to, to reach young people um, and, and get them and, and sort of trigger that, that interest in these areas um, before it's too late?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for me, I didn't, I didn't know what Silicon Valley was until a couple of years ago, which is really sad. You know, because it's a big part of our, our world. It's a big part of our country, and I and I'm a guy from really humble beginnings, and I was just I'm behind the eight ball. I'm luckily I'm fortunate to have relationships that kind of get me beyond the curve, but a lot of people don't have that opportunity. You know, so I think the younger you can get, um, getting, you know, STEM in new schools uh, or STEAM uh, in some areas too, is, uh, it's super beneficial because it is our future. It's our world, you know, and I think um, a lot of lower-income areas like these schools, they can't afford these things and they need to partner with organizations that can bring that. And that's where my heart is and that's where uh, what, uh, what the Greater Foundation does best is we bring resources and even have corporate partners who want to get involved Uh in in these lower income areas, who want to uh, increase their diversity inclusion efforts, you know, but you know, you got to create a pipeline uh, a, a pipeline of people who can actually uh, be a part of that and who are educated enough.
0: You know, I know it started with coding workshops. I know you guys still have like a fellowship program for very intensive coding training. Have uh-huh. you dabbled in that? Have you sort of tried to pick up coding skills or some of these uh, some of these kind of fundamentals yourself?
3: Yeah, definitely. I put my money where my mouth is. You know, I, I took the cold one-on-one course. So it was super difficult, but uh, it's definitely <laughs> something I was I was capable of doing, you know, and again, it, it goes down to uh, that introduction uh, phase and and actually be, being exposed to it and, and having a willingness to try something new, try something difficult that you've never probably, in most cases, haven't seen anybody of your background do. But, I mean, if you don't, you'll miss out And um uh, we've been having some tremendous success with it.
0: I know I just got an, an, another minute or so, but um, the logo, man, I love the logo. You got to start making a lot more merch with that stuff. Like, how excited were you to come, kind of come up with that brand identity? And and, uh, and and kudos to you for for making it look so stylish, man.
3: Well, oh, I, I definitely got to give it up to the team. You know, my team has been uh, amazing at that and, and kind of creating a lot of uh, the design as well as. Um, our, our, our graphic efforts as well too. And, uh, man, we, we just have a lot of really good stuff going, you know, I'm, I'm launching somewhat of a mini fund as well too to kind of invest in this space and other players are wanting to kind of get involved with me in that area too. So, I mean, there's a lot of really good things happening. Uh, a, a lot of stuff that that, I, that uh, my team's doing and, and I'm doing and things that we all believe in. And it's really fun.
0: Yeah. And last question, you know, you started greater, it you know, the greater foundation in Seattle, um, with switching teams, um, you know, how, how important is it for you to still, um, even though you can't geographically be there in the same way every day, um, how are you bridging that divide and staying so involved with the foundation? Because you're always tweeting about it. You're very, you're, it's clear that you're, you're a huge part of, of this from a hands-on perspective. What's the key to, uh, to doing that geographically?
3: I think honestly, I've been leaning on my team, you know, and we've have we've had some very committed volunteers, uh, a lot of people who just believe in our efforts, you know. We have uh, one a lot of uh, a lot of women, uh, a lot of people from different backgrounds as well. too, realizing that there's a problem and realizing that they have a, the power to do something about, about it, and Greater Foundation is just a practical step for them. It's a way to do it, and some of these people are working at big companies. Some of them are working at Starbucks. Some of them are working at Microsoft and and such, and right now, we're in Seattle. We're very Seattle-focused, but I mean... Obviously, the vision is to grow, grow from there, and, and to be in league cities as well, too, if not across the world.
0: Well, hey man, I gotta let you go. Thank you so much for the time. The the mission is great. We will um, make sure we're promoting the social channels and everything when we when we post this. And I really appreciate the time.
3: Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: Shaquille O'Neal was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame last week for a long and decorated career in the NBA. But to us... As you know, he's a Hall of Famer first for his rap albums, his reality shows, and of course, his career as a Hollywood leading man. We went deep on Kazam last week, but today we felt like we didn't get enough of the job done. So we are going even deeper on the full array of Shaq movie madness with one of our favorite writers and one of the best guys around, Nathan Rabin. Nathan is the original head writer of the A.V. Club and the author of great books like You Don't Know Me, but You Don't Like Me, My Year of Flops, Weird Out of the Book, and the brand spanking new book, Seven Days in Ohio, Trump, The Gathering of the Juggaloos, and The Summer, Everything Went Insane, which I hear is a bit like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas if Donald Trump played the drugs. So, Nathan... Exactly.
4: <laughs> so, <laughs> but to be fair, there's a lot of actual drugs. Uh, it's- not to be too much of a spoiler
0: there. Yeah. So, you know, we want to get all into the book. I've got, we got a lot of questions about the book and just kind of the overall sort of cultural kind of subcultures around sports, entertainment, music. Um, it's kind of a good place for us to tread, but I want to start by saying this. I'm so sorry that to do this, we made you rewatch Kazam. Can you accept our apologies?
4: (laughs) Although, let's be fair. I've never actually watched Kazam before. I'd Heard about Kazam? I'd, uh, I worked in a video store uh, at Blockbuster when it came out, so I rented people uh, Kazam. I judged them uh, harshly <laughs> while we did so But I never actually seen Kazam, which is weird, because it's exactly the kind of uh, crap uh, that uh, people like myself enjoy, especially, you know, I'm uh, an expert, I'm 40 years old. Uh, so, yeah, this really kind of hit me in the uh, nostalgic sweet spot. Yet it was still a terrible movie and an awful experience. Uh, you kind of think like, oh, man, how can a movie with Kim O'Neill as a rapping G not at least be a little bit of cheesy fun? Uh, then you watch the movie Kazam, and uh, you find out uh, <laughs> a movie like that can be zero fun, part of which is about 40% of it is dedicated to traumatic elements. Uh, they kind of, they do a lot of uh, Shaq uh, so they can really concentrate on the, uh, on the protagonist and, uh, you know, his troubled relationship with his parents, uh, the, uh, the, the fiance of his mom, who he's not so sure about. Uh, I, yeah, it felt like the kind of movie where there were lots of studio notes saying, this needs more heart, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also getting an illustration of why more heart is, uh, generally a pretty bad idea.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you because I'm a huge fan of uh, my year of flops. I followed all of your columns on uh, on you know sort of the history of some of the most infamous fiascos and and failures in, in movie history. And I always loved the way you rated them as either a failure, a fiasco, or a secret success. So I'm guessing that you're, you you would consider Shaq not a or Kazam not a secret success. But where on the failure or fiasco spectrum do you think it falls?
4: I would say that both Kazam and Steel uh, qualify as failures because, again, I was kind of, just, I was kind of looking forward to this because uh, it is, you know, kind of my wheelhouse. I don't think not be bad that I get something out of a bad movie, no matter how bad it is. Yet these movies were oddly dispiriting. They were oddly depressing. <laughs> so, because I like Steele O'Neill. He is a fun guy. He seems very charming. He seems like, you know, he'd be a lot of fun to hang out with. Uh, he's got a, you know, a nice smile. He's got an appealing presence. Uh, I like to see him, you know, out of court, but as a movie star, he's just deadly. And there are a couple of things. Uh, one of which is he kind of talks in this monotone, uh, and his delivery is very stilted. And especially when you have terrible dialogue. Uh, so that's, that's part of it. Uh, Again, you know, there's a lightness to uh, his, his persona and his personality off-screen. Uh, but on-screen, oh my God, he's just absolutely deadly. And then the other thing that's um, kind of fascinatingly terrible about this is in a lot of ways, uh, Kazem in particular, is a vessel for Shaquille O'Neal's rapping. Um, and I, I willingly concede here, you know, how uh, I'm, I'm talking about uh, my love and Tank clown posse. I've got, got nothing to hide here. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit that I have weak. More than once, uh, while listening to the colonial song "Biological Did Father," uh, <laughs> yeah, I I had my own issues uh, with my parents.
2: Although, yeah,
4: you imagine it also would give you know some sort of weird resonance to the uh, you know parental uh, issues in kazam. God, I just said resonance uh, emotional issues anyway, uh, but that's just not the case at all. Uh, Secret it, success,
1: it is. <laughs> all right, so that's <laughs>
4: done <dumb>. uh, <laughs> yeah. Shaquille O'Neal is in one of my favorite, my um, love lots of movies, and a film that is a huge secret that. and that movie is Freddy Got Fingered. Uh, and one, one of the keys to uh, Freddy Got Fingered being uh, Shaquille O'Neal's best movie, and far and away the, the funniest thing he's ever done, is that he's in it for about three and a half minutes. And instead of playing, you know, a <laughs> seven and a half foot tall uh, military super genius, uh, or, you know, some sort of rapid genie, uh, he is playing Shaquille O'Neal. And he's real good at being Shaquille O'Neal, that's kind of his art form. So let Shaquille be Shaquille, which is also why, you know, Blue Chips uh, is the best film that he starred in, you know, because, again, you're, you're casting Shaquille O'Neal as a superstar college basketball player. Uh, I don't know, he had to do a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, he had to you know, go to, go to uh, Lee Strasford's actor Studio uh, to try and figure out what those people were like.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Well, one of my favorite parts, as we discussed Kazam last a uh, couple weeks ago, was when Brad just sort of said offhandedly, "Yeah, the kid dies," <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know that is a pretty stunning revelation for the film. At the same time, when we dug into the director's life story, um, around that same time, his wife and son died of AIDS. Uh, that they had gotten oh, through God, blood true. transfusions. I mean, if you oh, consider, he's an actor too, wasn't he? He was like, a, yeah, it, in
4: the in the seventies.
1: Yeah, and so as and this was the last movie he did for a while. But he had directed like The Running Man. Um, hearing that and then looking back over Kazam, I couldn't help but wondering, though, to give him some credit if he wasn't trying to invest this movie with some emotion. Because he was going through things. I mean, like he was legitimately trying to direct a movie that reflects his life and reflects the struggle of being human with Shaquille O'Neal starring as a rapping genie and a conspiracy to sell a million dollars in Debrat Brat bootlegs. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> hey, that happened to a guy
4: right now. Uh, that was me, actually. No, uh, and actually when we talk about <clears> the <throat> director uh, let's call be your director. Isn't that Darsky? Uh, Starship right um, yes yeah television program Starship <laughs> directed Kazam the thing I actually feel is, is kind of fascinating as well because the guy who directed that is was like, a real science fiction guy he's got a lot of cred he worked on um, worked on B and uh, it's various incarnations he worked on Alien Nation so he was a guy who really cared about uh, comic books really cared about science fiction who kind of made this his uh, forte which makes that the film is so shockingly awful uh, kind of a surprise you'd imagine that you know he was I don't bring something to it. Um, and again, I, I looked at Wikipedia uh, pretty extensively, maybe while I was watching the movie. It maybe did not uh, capture 100% of my uh, imagination. But there was a very interesting uh, sort of trivia thing where uh, they said that the writer-director visited the inner city of Los Angeles for a day and talked to young people <laughs> to get sense of how the young people talk. As a result of this, this is literally, I could be be getting this wrong, but there's literally a scene where Sheila O'Neill says, yo, I thought he was the man, dog. Nailed it. (laughs) For your homies. (laughs) Um, And again, it's it's, it's literally like what some 63-year-old comic book geek is like, yeah, that's what the kids are saying nowadays. They're saying, yeah, front in for your homies. And and Ray J is in this as well. Uh, Really doesn't uh, matter one way or another, but, uh, but yeah some p- pretty confusing uh, ideas wrapped up in, in the idea of making Tegeloneal uh, a movie star.
1: Nathan, I love what that point brings up. I mean, look, I think he probably could have spent more than a day in the inner cities of Los Angeles before <laughs> writing an entire movie that takes place there. But it is funny, as we're talking to you who has analyzed films like this in a serious film critic way, not in a breaking it down on a not sports podcast. These are made by people who are real filmmakers and they're approaching this seriously, yet somewhere along the way, something or everything goes off the rails. Um, How does that, do you think that's an accurate depiction based off your studied analysis
4: of flops? Well, I think, I think the problem is that Shaquille O'Neal was never supposed to be a movie actor. Uh, he was never supposed to be a movie star. He's very charismatic. He has a lot of magnetism. He has a lot of uh, je ne sais quoi. Um, but as a film actor, he just doesn't make sense at all. Part of it is that he's so big. You know, a man whos who is right. cute, can't really play, I don't know, get for the postman or something. It just looks silly. And <laughs> um, but, uh, and again, I, I think they just, they didn't find the right uh, idea for him. And I think, that, again, there are some people who are to be movie stars, than some people who are not. Uh, and that's definitely. Chiel, and it is not meant to be a movie star. Although it's interesting, kind of looking back uh, at history, uh, Steel is interesting to me because it is a DC comic book movie. Right. Uh, and if you look at the character of Steele, he's based on uh, African American folklore. He's also uh, a character in Superman. Like, he's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, an ally of Superman. He uh, sort of Plays and some of the Superman's sort of big dramas, and they completely cut that out, which is kind of under. Paging
1: Zack Snyder. Paging Zack Snyder. Zack Snyder <laughs> to the steel set.
4: Although it's funny, I mean, that's, I think this is one of the few ideas that, like, yeah, this is so tainted that nobody in their right mind uh, would ever try and make a steel movie in 2016. But who, who the hell knows? Uh, Howard the Duck up in one of the uh,
1: right and, and- in the Marvel universe, correct? <laughs>
4: Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, I, I don't know. I'd like to think, uh, if only for nostalgia's sake, uh, Shaquille O'Neill will reprise his role of Steel uh, as like Suicide Squad 2 or uh, Batman versus <laughs> Superman, Dawn of Justice, also steals here for some reason. Um, so yeah, I, maybe, who knows? Maybe the idea that Steel and only is aged like a fine wine uh, and he needs to be in his 40s and shit. He's like Philip Baker Hall. The older he gets, the, the better he is as an actor.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, look, I think that's a good
4: point about <laughs> but the way this craft all these years, you know,
0: <laughs> absolutely. And I think it's a good point about Shaq, you know, with, you know, I guess I would say go to the aging idea. We talked with Francis Capper from the movie Kazam last week. He said that he keeps holding out hope that Kazam will someday be viewed as so bad. It's good. Uh, I guess that would be more of the, the, you know, fiasco slash secret success line of, um, of your spectrum. Do you think that we'll get to a point where people look at these movies and say, look, Steel is a movie with Judd Nelson as the villain. Let's watch it as <laughs> camp and, and enjoy it as camp and not think of it as um, just a bomb.
4: The problem with uh, you know Steel and Kazam in terms of So Bad It's Good is that uh, it only means the uh, It's So Bad part. There's no ironic enjoyment to be derived from either of these movies. And again, I'm the perfect person to be entertained. I'm the perfect person to get some sort of campy, uh, trashy enjoyment. And and I think one of the problems is they're so dour, you know, uh, it, it in Steel. But if his uh, his assistant is a wheelchair-bound uh, woman played by Annabelle Gish. right? And I love the idea that one of uh, one of the acting world's like most legendary uh, acting dynasties. Uh, so, <laughs> somehow ended up, you know, the the the, uh, the, the sidekick for Steel. Uh, so I think that's a big part. Is movies are so tower and they take themselves so seriously, which should not be a problem for a movie about a rapping genie, uh, or a movie about a. Uh, I, mean, I think the weird about Steel is that he's kind of in this weird thing where he's not really a superhero, but he's also really not a superhero. Like he doesn't have any superpowers, but he has technology. And I was, you know, talking about it to my wife. Uh, she was going to walk me back. It's like, oh my god, these movies are so terrible, and they're kind of racist as well. Um, as <laughs> yeah. uh, a throw-in, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. look like Kazam, you know, and you have the Arab character who's like out of Aladdin, you know, where he's just like, ooh, I must have a so much bunch of money. So um, yeah, why these movies take themselves so seriously? I had absolutely no idea. Um. But uh, they do, and it doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, and it completely destroys any capacity for fun or camp or goofy enjoyment. Um, yeah, I, I cannot, uh, I cannot discourage people from watching these movies strongly enough. God, the things you do to promote a book sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I wanna, so I want to transition to the new book uh, it just came out the, today, the day we we're taping this. I, I'm really fascinated by the way you've kind of woven in a few different themes, a few different big gatherings uh, between the Republican National Convention, the gathering of the Juggalos, and especially having done it back in our stomping ground of Ohio where Gareth and I are from. So let me start by just saying, what's the mood like in that state right now, Um, you know, knowing that they are a battleground once again in just the most insane election ever? Like, what was what was the vibe you were getting from people and 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 how did I guess how did they greet all the madness that kind of came their way this summer?
4: Well, I think, you know, there's kind of a sense that if you are where a national convention is held, you're sort of at the epicenter of that. And that's not necessarily the case for Cleveland. Generally, Uh, I think there was (laughs) a thing. All of these forces were coming together. And I'm going to write about this in the book. It was a political convention. It also felt like it was a police convention. 'Cause you saw police officers from all over the country, from all different divisions they would know, like the, the uh Texas Highway Patrol uh would be next to, you know, uh reserves mm-hmm. from from like Missouri. So I think that was definitely added to the to the energy secured net was that there were so many people with guns. Um, right. thankfully both of them were police officers. Oddly enough, uh, I think I did read about this book, but the only first or uh, who was open carrying, uh, while I was there, was it a Muslim gentleman? Uh, you know, it's kind I'm kind of protecting my interests and I'm protecting, you know, what I have. And I, I don't want this to turn into some sort of, uh, pirago. um, but yeah, there definitely was a weird energy. There was a dark energy. There was a toxic energy. Um, there's just something weird and creepy and sinister about Donald Trump. Uh, and that kind of pervaded uh, the entire city of Cleveland. And I really got to a point where I, I wanted to leave desperately. And in the perfect world, I would have been able to have stayed all four, all four days of the convention. I would have been able to have seen Trump's speech and whatnot. But I was really, really happy to leave. Uh, and according you know, to conventional wisdom, you know, conventions are supposed to be nice and fun and interesting and wholesome, and the gathering is supposed to be debauched and crazy and dark and, and evil. And the opposite—you know—the the the, uh, the gathering was like really sunny and fun and positive, positive. Uh, a lot of people were you know uh, affirming each other. And then the convention was just very, very dark uh, and very, very um, paranoid. You know, it was just about. Hmm. Uh, Dehumanizing people, as opposed to kind of lifting them up, which is kind of what the Gathering of the Juggalos was. It was a celebration of individuality. It was a celebration of Juggalos. It was a celebration of Insane Clown Posse. It was just—it was very celebratory. Whereas there was something very, very dark about the RNC.
1: When you got into Insane Clown Posse and the world of the Juggalos. Did you do that for your book, or was that something that you had been attracted to first, and then you're like, this seems like a good topic?
4: Here's basically what happened, was uh, I pitched the book to my agent, got it in 2009, uh, as mm-hmm. I fell in love with the woman who's now my wife, who's the mother of my child. Uh, and I fell in love with her, and she was like a huge Fish fan. When she was in high school, when she was in college, so I'm like, I want to write a book where I follow Fish. And I see what it's like, and I kind of, you know, write about it from a sort of detached sociological uh, perspective, even certain uh, comic satirical distance. And I brought it to my uh, editor and my publisher at Scribner, and they said, we really like this idea, but we don't think there is a book to be written about just fish in 2009, 2010. So what if you expand it mm-hmm. to thinking about different subcultures? And at this point, uh, my wife was in... She was she's getting her master's in teaching from Brown, and she did not have a television. So we would watch the Miracles video uh, on uh, her laptop.
1: Oh, tremendous. Fucking yeah. magnets. How do they work? Yeah, yeah.
4: So we would, uh, like, the early part of her course. she had four marks by us watching a lot of Jersey Shore, and we mm-hmm. the Miracles video over and over and over again. So when they said, hey, why don't you open this up to other things? I said, oh, my God, I need to start I need to meet these people. I need to be part of the scene, And it took me a while to actually get into the music. I mean, the first year that I, uh, the first year that I wrote about this, um, yeah, I didn't it. I didn't even listen to the music. I thought, like, well, it's kind of about the culture, it's kind of about this world. I don't necessarily have to lower myself to listening to it. So I was very, very shocked to discover that I actually really enjoyed the music. And it's funny, and it's fun, and it's poppy. And I think people, you know. They have this horror core element that I'm not crazy about. Like the more dark and sinister. Their songs that are the as chish as I am, necessarily. Mm. Um, but they're fun, poppy, goofy, silly songs. I really, really dig. They put on a set of show. I actually don't have a lot of affection for them as people. Uh, you know, Violent J is a pretty good dude. You know, I've interviewed him a bunch of times. <laughs> um, I've come to believe in Violent J. <laughs> 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 And originally, my book was going to be about a bunch of different subcultures. I went to the Disco Biscuits Festival. I went on the Kid Rock Show on the Most Cruise. And what I discovered was uh, oh, I went on the Dam Cruise? God, that was weird. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the only two things that really spoke to me that I had into connection to were Fish and it St. Paul like, Posse. So that became uh, the book. And then the uh, the chapter about me going on the Kid Rock Show the Most Cruise, uh, that's part of the ebook. book for You Don't Know maybe You Don't Like Me. And it's funny and interesting, and then I'll be moving, uh, but yeah, it doesn't really fit in, uh, to the rest of the book the way, uh, the chapter is about jugglers and the chapter is about fish,
1: got it, yeah, and you know, for those of you who, uh, this is fish 3.0 we're talking about in 2009, so your editor was probably right to expand it, yeah, now, uh, not to go down that rabbit hole, which I could definitely go down, um, I am struck by how, interest, like your interests in subcultures and how you've managed to, um, approach it with both the ironic sociological distance that you mentioned earlier, but at the same time, find sort of to use a cheap phrase, like the heart within it. And you can now talk about the gathering of the juggalos as a place where, you know, with a positive vibe and totally pretty much immerse yourself in it. Is this now something that this sort of immersive journalism and investigatory approach is that the thing that you're most interested in as a writer?
4: It seems to be working for you, yeah, definitely. I mean, if I could make a living doing things like uh covering the gathering the juggalos and the Republic National Convention, I would do so in heartbeat. I mean, I think that's what's most exciting. That's what really gets my uh, you know, my adrenaline pumping. Um, is you know what I like to do, I love to write columns, I love to write books, I love to go places and meet weird people and do interesting things. And one of the things that I've tried to do as a writer, you know, over the course of the 20 years I've been writing, is I've tried to find the value in things that people don't think have any value. And that is definitely true of the Instinct of Clown poppy, that's definitely true of Catherine I wanted to find some value in the Republican National Convention. There was some part of me that was... And in Kazam. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I did. I wanted to at least enjoy something about Kizam. I wanted to enjoy something about Steel. And I honestly can't name anything. I mean, literally, maybe right. the thing that stands out most about Steel to me is that Richard Roundtree is in it, uh, Shaft. And he wears a beret that makes him look like Nelson Dan Peoples or Garrett Morris. And again, very boring, not that interesting. <laughs> but like for me, right. like, the most interesting thing about that is an awful, awful movie I guess maybe, you know, the connection to Superman as well. But that, I think, would have uh, been more interesting if they had acknowledged it on any level. And that's just been like, you can't paint, you know, one of the biggest superheroes in existence, you know, by roping him into this dodgy, poorly thought out colonial vehicle.
0: Well, Nathan, we can't thank you enough for joining the show. The book sounds great. Where can people pick it up? I mean, I I know it's on Amazon, but uh, where else should should everyone be looking?
4: They They can only pick it up on Amazon. Uh, I I utilized uh, their exciting uh, ebook self-publishing material. So yeah, if you want to read it, uh, you can totally read it uh, on
0: Amazon. Awesome. And they should follow you
4: at... at at You need to uh, buy it from this massive corporation. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes that uh, that is fair and they should follow you on twitter at Nathan Raven. so th- thank you so much for joining the show best of luck with the book launch and uh, we appreciate the time and And good l- and let's hope for Shaq turning this thing around getting that second life in the acting career you yeah. like talked about
4: I had such a good time it was worth watching
0: Steel and Kazam <laughs> Well, <laughs> that's that's very generous my friend And we are back. You know, in the world of sports, when guys get into side projects, businesses, whatever else that, you know, they do that makes them interesting, there's always the segment of fans and media that tell them to stick to sports. Forget that. Life is work and the things that distract us from work. So on this show, we close out every week by talking about the things that are distracting us, maybe give you something to, to get into or binge watch or or binge listen to or whatever Gareth's into. So, Gareth, <laughs> what crazy modern art are you going to feast <laughs> feast on this week for your distractions?
1: Uh, my distraction this week is not too out there. Um, it's available at every newsstand in America Aaron Cohen, one of the co-hosts of The Throwback Show, someone I've worked with a lot, and one of the great sports writers in America today, especially for broadcasts, he and I have talked a lot in edit suites about reading The New Yorker every week. And having a New Yorker subscription is kind of punishing, because basically every week a new book, general interest book, shows up in your mailbox, and you have to plow through it. He gave me a great piece of advice years ago from his father, which was basically... If you read the front short section called Talk of the Town and one article every week, you will have read The New Yorker for that week as best you can. And I think that that's a good rule of thumb. I have tweaked that approach for myself. I tend to make it that if I read one article and the criticism at the back end, I am happy with what I've gotten out of that week's issue of The New Yorker. That said, I got behind on my subscription through most of the summer and each $7 magazine according to his cover price, piled up, and I did not read much of it. And I have to tell you, the last two weeks, I have absolutely loved that damn magazine. So it's not much of a distraction to say, hey, read the most prestigious magazine in America. But damn it, the last two weeks, I have found myself anytime I have a spare moment, sitting up at night reading a story about Burkhard Bilger's German heritage and how it relates to war, Nick Palmgarten, my favorite New Yorker writer on Damon Barrel and his upstate New York restaurant. I will read anything Nick Palmgarten reads. Staying up till 2.30 in the morning, reading a profile of Pete Wells, the New York Times food critic, going deep into child soldiers and the U.S. drug war. Anything. The writing is so good. The talent is incredible. Get yourself a New Yorker subscription, it's the best magazine in the world, and read it. It is an endless distraction, and you don't have to read every word, according to Aaron Cohen's father.
0: Alright, that's a good one. Alright, my distraction, I'm also going to go super highbrow, Gareth. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. I've got two words that sound like three words. John Bonnet Ramsey. Oh, boy. Here we go. I went down the rabbit hole. I stared into the abyss, and I think I cracked the fucking case.
1: <laughs> 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 All
0: right, maybe not not the last part, but I, I have been getting way into serial killer podcasts. If, if something, God forbid anything ever happened to anyone near my life, I'd be like suspect number one, because they'd look at my recent podcast downloads and be like, what have you been plotting? Um, I got into a podcast called my favorite murder. It's two comedians who comedians, uh, two women who are very funny. They talk about uh true crime. They've got a very l- loose style. Uh, one of their, I think in their very first episode, they talked about the Jean Bernay Ramsey case. One of America's kind of most baffling unsolved mysteries. And candidly, like I've always thought of this as not my cup of tea when it comes to true crime. I, I'm more of a want to read about Ted Bundy versus like mm. more popularized um tabloid murders but this case is bizarre man it is strange there is you know the prospect of international uh you know terrorism and espionage there is the all the stuff about her being a beauty queen and whether she was targeted for that there's the intrigue about whether her family was responsible and if they were how they could even be responsible there's the cops screwing it up because it was christmas and none of the best cops were around It's fascinating. I also then got into, they mentioned the last podcast on the left, which is a podcast with, again, more comics that talk about uh, just bizarre things in American life. Lots of serial killer kind of stories. They they go through and and dig up uh, some of those, you know, some of those tales. They did a two-parter on this and it was great. It goes into everything from Hmm. whether they were, whether the parents could have done it to, uh, MK Ultra and whether, like, mind control was involved because, like, you know, like, the spy programs people talk about on, like, the dark web <laughs> and in, like, wow. 9-11 conspiracy videos because the dad worked for a company that, that sold, like, that made weapons for Lockheed Martin. Like, everything is crazy about this. So there's a new show on CBS coming out, I think in a week or two, where they've, like, reconstructed the freaking house and they're gonna go through and actually... Like, try to really recreate what was possible in the amount of time and what wasn't. And mm-hmm. I invited Bill James on, celebrated, you know, baseball analytics godfather. He wrote a book about true crime and he argued definitively that the Ramses could not have done this murder in house, literally in house. Bill, I have invited you on like seven times <laughs> to talk about this <laughs> over. Not just this murder. I want to talk about that book. It's one of my favorite like uh, just true crime books because he goes through all these different cases and lays out, uh, uses like his own analytical model looking at the evidence to see whether he thinks a guy did it or didn't. It's fascinating. Bill has not returned my emails. Bill, you're always welcome here. Internet. I've joined your ranks. <laughs> e- e- email us your theories. Let's. <laughs>
1: I'm part of the race to the
0: bottom. <laughs> Reddit. Let's get this done. <laughs> oh, you know, God. This is kind of like. I think there Brad. I think there's already been a few movies made about World War II. You know, yeah. I-, I think there's been a few people trying to figure this one out.
1: Right. At this point, that might be my most quoted Simpsons. Line.
0: <laughs> well, we do have a lot of uh, ideas
1: that have been done. <laughs> so, anyway, Everything's that, been done. The Simpsons did it.
0: Yeah, that's our show for this week. Uh, let's do some, sh- uh, you know, like, rate, us, and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Twitter, Instagram, Beam, and uh, more to come on our beam feeds soon. Bear with us, guys. We're learning the platform. Uh, Gareth, you got any shout outs this week?
1: Uh, shout out to Adam Castaldo, very talented New York editor. Uh, he's helped us out the last couple of weeks on editing. Uh, we went to college together and he has come a long way in the last couple of years. He's a bright dude. I love working with him. Great collaborator. Thank you for jumping in on Just Not
4: Sports.
0: Yeah, I'm going to shout out. Megan Rapino, Russell Okung, uh, all the reps from their various teams. Uh, Nathan Rabin from AV Club, one of our favorite writers, for coming on the show, talking about Shaq. He watched multiple movies Shaq made for the show, which I think is fascinating and, and amazing. Thank you, Nathan, for that. And uh, in lieu of Adam, Garrett, should we try to just do his usual shout-outs ourselves?
1: Booty rappers stay booty. That's oh, wait. about what I got. No, no, here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's that was the joke. Right? Yeah, okay, <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs>
0: I get it you know. now. How about this? I want to give a shout out to my boy Uzi. Nice, Jeff Jeff Jeff, Jeff
1: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that dude. Meach, Meach, Ron no, Mac,
0: Lil Swanee. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Ron Mack and my other cousin Ron. I, I
1: said him. Oh, but your other cousin Ron. <laughs> yeah, him too. Adam, yeah. come
0: back. We're butchering this <laughs> booty rapper Stay booty. Stay booty.